Why is recorded in front of a live studio audience. So should we talk about this project? We probably should. I'm trying to figure out the best way to introduce it. Um, so listeners might know we have another podcast. Listeners do know we have another podcast. Yes, we promote it frequently enough on this yes. podcast. Yes. Uh, but one of our early guests on that was a DJ, Nikki Ciano, who we always say... Do you want was, me to sell this film? Yes, please. He was the... <laughs> main first dj at studio 54 and that is the least interesting thing about him yes and that is very true and we discovered him and knew we had to interview him just from seeing a small clip of him featured in the bg's documentary on hbo and we argue over who told who to reach out to him but he was gracious enough to be on our show yes and immediately from there we knew we had to do more with him because he is. Do you want to take it back? No, please go for it. <laughs> I want to hear you sell this. This is why, with your hosts, Heidi Hedquist and Luke Poling. He is not only one of the most engaging and riveting human beings we've ever spoken to, but his story is incredible. He opened a club named The Gallery at the age of 17, which is known as the first disco. Um, He is one of the forefathers of the whole disco movement and was there for, not only there for everything that happened, but was part of the fabric of what made that happen from beat matching to the inspiration for the, the feel of the club. And the clubs in early disco were a place where everyone belonged. And it, it inspired so much of what we see today with EDM and house music and the energy that exuded from this place and then the people is just incredible. And that's just the first part of his story. But one of the things that helps pull this project together, which we still haven't said what the project is. Have nope, we? not yet. Okay, no. great. So <laughs> we'll just keep like making people wait. Yep. Is that he has all of this original film footage and photographs from the era that are high quality, that are that really transport you into this place and you can feel the energy of what was happening and the excitement. And it reminds you that we can all get along and have a good time. Um, so what we're doing is, you wanna take it back? Sure. So <laughs> we are making a movie with Nikki uh, the title of the film is his sort of theme song that he always plays when he's DJing, and that is Love is the Message. And that's something throughout his life that pops up again and again. And sort of the message of the film is about how positivity and love and everything else is a very, very good thing in anyone's life. And Nikki has found that to be true in his. And his so, story yes. goes on several chapters because following his time DJing, he goes through his own ups and downs and and personal struggles and comes out on the other side and was at the forefront of being a counselor um, during the AIDS movement and would be one of the few people who would actually willingly and knowingly go be in a room sitting next to a person who was stricken with HIV in a time when no one understood it and thought that just being near someone would kill you. Um, And we're also bearing the lead that he stumbled upon the Stonewall riots. 
Yes, which is so, kind of what inspired him for a lot of things. But that's at the front of the trailer. So. That is true. So, but, <laughs> but again, so we don't bury the lead. Um, we are making this movie. Yes. And we are looking for help to do so. We want people, as many people as possible, to join our team and join us in making this movie and be part of the whole process. And to do that, we're working with a website called Greenlit. And if you go to our website or our page on their website, greenlit.com slash L-I-T-M, love is the message, you will find everything about the film. And it's like Kickstarter or any of these other things. You pledge money to the project. We use that money to go make the film. And then we have a bunch of really cool things to, to get you. Things like uh, posters, mixes from Nikki. For one of them, he will come to your house or your street party and dj and, and one of the other selling things, venues all around the world so one of them so if he comes to your house that's a pretty cool yes coup. he he sold out in new york a few weeks ago that we got to be there for he and detroit very very close yeah sell out in detroit this past weekend he was in manchester and glasgow correct mm-hmm. pretty yeah. much sold out and one of the things we're offering um that i'm most excited about is a signed record from Nikki from his record collection. I'm just going to hold this up here. So I can this is a copy. Exactly. This is a copy of Let's Disco, a How to Disco record. That That is one of the ones. And also we have back here the MFSB, Mother, Father, Sister, Brother. Love is the Message, which is Nikki's theme song. We're going to have him sign some of this stuff and send them out to the good people who join us on this project. And joining the project's really easy. And obviously we know times are tight, but every single dollar helps bring it to reality. We know how President Obama came to office. A lot of a lot of donations were teeny tiny that helped get him there. So please don't think obviously if you have thousands of dollars you'd like please, to yeah. the project, we love you and we'll find all kinds of other things to give you. But um even a dollar, five dollars. What's important is your yeah, what's most important is your presence and your being part of the team and helping us spread this message of just love and positivity and the power of music and the power of art and everything wonderful in this world, which I think is sort of the themes of our show. Yeah. Shows. And yeah. I think that's one of the things that kind of instantly with the three of us kind of connected us was this idea that like, well, yeah, this would everything be so much easier if people were just nice to each other and loved one another but to get started i want to say how great it is to have a fellow violet on the program see by the way not only a fellow violet but um there was a year in which i was the bobcat what i was a mascot oh my god God. a double win for us And, and i think nyu is the only School, I have to double check this math, but I believe it's the only school with a mascot named after the card catalog system at the library. It could be. It could be. Yeah, so we're pretty tough. Don't want to mess with the violets. Wait, if you guys are violets, then why are you a mascot? Or why were you a bobcat? Why aren't you a giant flower? Because is that going to intimidate you on the basketball court, Heidi? No. Best case scenario, the rest of the, the other team has allergies. Best case scenario. <laughs> well, that works. I mean, mine yeah, was true. the worst. Like we, 
where I went to school, we were pioneer Pete. So what's that going to do? Give you dysentery and kill you That's on true. the Oregon yeah. Trail? So, I feel like it's still better than a violet. Like a violet, like really can't do anything for you. Yeah. I mean, it looks nice. Yes. Don't get me wrong. Our colors are lovely, but. Yeah. I mean, there's that. Our colors were terrible. So yeah. See. So take that. But let's get to the important stuff. Yes. Um, this program you have, Knock Knock Give a Sock. Do you come up with the name first or the charity aspect of it? So the charity aspect came first and I almost had a funny name for it. It was called like, give a knock, donate a sock. And my friend was like, that's dumb. Let's call it knock, knock, give a sock. And I was like, you're brilliant. Do you want to be a board member? <laughs> that's how college born nonprofits work. Right. So can you but talk that's a little amazing, bit of- oh. by the way, because that's way better than all the rigmarole everybody goes through if you, post-college to pull off a nonprofit. You guys just get down to business, get everything going and actually get socks to people. Like that's a way better way to go about it. Thank you. I appreciate that. <laughs> so can you talk a little bit about the um, origin of the program and sure. how that came to be? Sure. So Knock Knock Give a Sock got started a whole bunch of years ago when I was a sophomore actually at NYU and I was giving out sandwiches to some of my neighbors on the street. And one guy said, ma'am, it's so nice you're giving out sandwiches, but one thing we could really use are a pair of socks. And I very quickly realized that my pink polka dotted size six foot socks weren't going to fit him. So I decided to knock on every door on my floor. And in about 15 minutes, I got over 40 pairs of socks. By the time I was a senior in college, we actually had spread to over 20 college campuses and collected over 50,000 pairs of socks. But the reason that origin name of Knock Knock Give a Sock, the reason that got started was because I literally went knocking on doors, collecting socks, and then going into like the dining halls and being like, who here wants to knock on floors, Uh, you know, knock on doors on the floor to collect socks for us. Um, And that's how we spread throughout the campus. And then Eventually, I made a Facebook page and other college campuses wanted to get involved. Not to make this all about NYU, but which dorm gave the best? Wasn't Weinstein, was it? Hayden? By the way, for my freshman year was in Weinstein. And yeah, but that's cinder blocks and sophomores. Come on. Let's, <laughs> yeah. So, uh, but I was in Palladium. Palladium did a, a pretty fantastic job, uh, but I do think Hayden did the best. There we go. Thank you very much. Now, one of the things that's so interesting about this program is that like doing the reading, you're not asking for a huge, it's not a huge ask for anybody. It's simply one pair of socks if you want to give more amazing, but like just one, that's all we need is just one. And this idea of creating a group mentality of everyone working together, just doing a little bit, accomplishing so much more. Was that something from the outset where you're like, let's just streamline this and more will always be more. So let's get as many people as possible. So not really, although to answer your question, looking back, yes. Yes, it was brilliant. I meant to do that from the beginning. I, <laughs> I still, I've, we've collected over 3 million pairs of socks. Um, and I still tell people to this day, I've only donated one pair. And that speaks to the power of community. Um, so first of all, there's that concept. Uh, definitely, you know, I only gave one pair and we've had 3 million uh, collected and the activation of other students on campus and other people around you in terms of giving back has definitely been a profound lesson around this, but it didn't start that way. Uh, It started with because Diego told me he needed a pair of socks and my socks literally weren't going to fit him. So I was like, man, I got to do this quickly. Let me just 
knock on some doors on my floor and within 15 minutes, we got over 40 pairs. And then I like, that's when I was like, oh, cool. Maybe we can make something out of this. That's when I decided to, you know, I kind of got this like high off getting so many people involved so quickly, which now 40 pairs of socks is nothing for me. But at that point I was like, whoa, this happened way too quickly. Think about how much more we could do. Um, So really it was kind of once it got started, I was like, oh man, like we can make this way bigger. Where does, where do you keep all the socks right now? (laughs) So it's actually a great question. Um, And not going to give a sock has actually outgrown just the sock component of what we do. And I'll go into that in a minute. Um, but basically, as I mentioned, knock, knock, give a sock. By the time I was a senior, we ended up collecting over 50,000 pairs of socks. Now this sock collection was just meant to be a little project. Except now that my parents garage in New Jersey had become a warehouse for socks. And they were like, Adina, um, you got to get these out of here. So I needed to start raising money to be able to afford a warehouse. And then I was like, and then I started emailing sock companies to send us socks and they asked if I was a 501c3. I was like, a 501 what? I had no idea that 501c3 was a term for a nonprofit tax-exempt organization. So luckily, my sister's a lawyer. I call her. I'm like, Daniela, need your help. I don't know what I got myself into, but it uh, seems like I'm starting a nonprofit because <laughs> mom and dad want us to get these socks out of here. We're drowning and yeah. <laughs> so that's how it became. Um, once we got some funding and we're able to get a warehouse and get companies to give us more socks. We were able to gain some legitimacy. And that's when I kind of joke, I became a sock celebrity on campus. People would ask me to come speak in their college classrooms, in their synagogues and their churches. And I would speak to different audiences. And at that point, we even had some offices that were collecting socks for us. And when I would speak different places, I would always ask the audience two questions. So I'll ask the two of you here. Right. Let me know if you've ever given money, food, or clothing to someone in need, yes. either in person or donation bin. Both, yes. Yes. My second question is, can you tell me the name of one person experiencing homelessness? I actually can. But you have, you have a, your job it, kind of allows you. I know, it does. I, I will play, and I do not. <laughs> um, well, so uh, you're the exception to the rule if you've said yes, but the truth is I walk into rooms of 100, 200 people And when I asked that second question, maybe two or three people Mm -hmm. raised their hand. And what I've noticed is that there's a disconnect between the people who are giving and the people who are receiving. Mm -hmm. And what that also led to was crazy stereotypes around homelessness. Um, You know, you ask most people, what does homelessness look like? It's the guy in the street corner with a cardboard sign or the lady with the big shopping cart, right? these images, right? Long beard, straggly hair, et cetera. Um, But what most people don't realize, and I'm going to talk primarily here in New York City, Mm -hmm. um, but here in New York City, out of everyone who's homeless in New York City, only 5% of people experiencing homelessness are actually on the street, are people that we see, which Mm -hmm. means 95% are in shelters. You know, many of whom are working, 70% are families. Out of the 60,000 people who are homeless, in New York, 25,000 are children, right? We're talking, you know, over one third, right? Yeah. So, but when we think about homelessness, right, we have that image in our head. So there's, what that led to is a lot of questions from students being like, Adina, what you're doing is great, but aren't most people who are homeless choosing to be homeless? 
aren't most of them alcoholics or drug addicts? Don't most of them have mental illness? Like on college campus at NYU, they're all talking about mental wellness, you know, and mental health. They're not even saying mental illness. But when it comes to homelessness, there's a lack of connection there, which creates a lack of sensitivity Mm -hmm. and lack of empathy. So basically what I needed to do, what I felt, what I needed to do was actually, I'm walking into all these shelters. I'm giving out socks. I'm seeing literally groups of three-year-olds come over and like wave to me and talk to me as I'm walking into family shelters. I'm like, what? This is homelessness? How, like, how did I not know? And so my senior year of college, I decided to bring 50 of my college classmates and 50 people who had helped me collect socks to have dinner side by side. And we had two rules. One, no one was allowed to serve food to anybody else. It was all family style. And two, everyone had to sit next to someone new who they hadn't met before walking into that room. We had icebreaker questions on the table. And by the end of the dinner, college students were telling me, Adina, we can't tell who's homeless and who's not. And it was at that moment that I wanted to bring these meet your neighbor dinners to the corporate space. Right. When it was, when I was collecting socks, it was, it was a side project, right? I was collecting socks. I felt good, but it wasn't going to be my career. Once I did this meet your neighbor dinner, this is what I want to do for life. But I want to do it with people who had resources and power. Because if you look at any social change across America, right? You look at same sex marriage, you look at the BLM movement, all these different things, right? They all happen because people had family members who would come out or people had friends in the office who were black, right? It didn't happen just because someone thought it was a good idea one day. And what I realized was there was this massive disconnect between people who are homeless and people with resources. And if there's no personal relationship there, then how do you really gain stakeholders in creating change? So um, after I did this meet your neighbor dinner on college, campuses, that's when I knew, okay, this is going to be my full-time job, but I want to do this with JP Morgan. I want to do this with Blackstone. I want to do this with Facebook, all these different companies. But I was like this little college graduate who was going to listen to me. So that's you got not- 40 million pairs of socks. That says right. you should be listened to. <laughs> yeah, right? yeah. So that's when knock, knock, give a socks mission became humanizing homelessness one sock at a time by turning transactions into interactions, taking these collections of socks and turn them into meaningful interactions like these dinners. So afterwards, the model became essentially engaging companies like JP Morgan in collecting socks in their offices, which was easy. We had a cute name. I was like this happy-go-lucky, straight out (laughs) college kid. They're like, this is easy enough. We'll put a bin in our office for you. And then afterwards, I would say, we have an employee engagement opportunity where your employees can actually meet the recipients of these sock donations. And, How did that go and, over? Um, very difficult the first year until mm-hmm. we got the first company that did it. And Austin and Bird, uh, a law firm here in New York City, and they have branches throughout the United States, was the first company to take a chance on us and do Meet Your Neighbor Dinner with us. And after that, it became the opener. Now we have done it with JP Morgan, Morgan Stanley, Blackstone, Bank of America. Salesforce. So we've done it now with all these different companies, uh, which has been really exciting. Uh, And I'm sure we'll get into this. The pandemic was really difficult um, for many reasons. 
but pre-pandemic, the way our organization worked was we would distribute half a million socks a year while actually hiring people living in shelters to help us distribute those socks. We would do meet your neighbor lunch and dinners with different companies. And then the third thing is we would do a holiday carnival every year for over 300 kids living in shelters as a way to engage the families. Because while most of our program is targeted at uh, single adults, um, because family shelters, it's just hard. There's bedtime and all those fun things that right. parents have to go through. Uh, so we work mainly with single adult shelters. So our holiday carnival is a way to engage the entire community. I'm comedian David Race in Los Angeles. I host a celebrity-filled paranormal talk show like no other. Monstrosity has great guests answering weird questions. You won't believe the combo of celebrities and paranormal experts who've been on this show. I guarantee you'll like Monstrosity, or you get your time back. Go to monstrositypodcast.com right now and take a look. Wow. That's so interesting. That, that kind of that growth and that expansion from just literally a single pair of socks to this. What are you serving for dinner? Oh, that's a great question. Um, it depends. So it depends on the model with the company that we have. Some companies uh, end up providing the food. So whatever they show up with, you know, it could be anywhere from mac and cheese to chicken to steaks to turducken sure okay um and then yeah and then depending on where we do it sometimes we have you know we provide the food there's basically like different tier models um for companies to to get involved with us so it's like you can provide the space and we'll provide the food or you'll provide the space and food or you'll provide none of it and make a nice donation (laughs) what has been i mean obviously there have been so many impactful moments but especially coming from these dinners bringing these worlds together what has been the single most eye-opening thing that you've experienced from hearing their experiences together? There are two, if I can give two stories. Of course. One time uh, a woman got up and a lot of times we always have two people from the shelters who we, who we pick in advance who actually pay them an honorarium for sharing their stories. We call them the heart openers. Um, and we have them share their stories and journeys around homelessness. And then afterwards, naturally, people just want to get up and share whether they're from a home, from a shelter. Um, But there are two stories that were extremely impactful. One woman got up one time and she said, in society, I have felt invisible. And when I don't feel invisible, I feel annoying in society. But at these dinners, this is one of the few places where I feel a part of society. People ask me all the time, well, isn't it weird? You're having these like corporate executives sit down. People are almost like, aren't they like uncomfortable because like some are in fancy clothes and some are not. And I'm like, they see us every day, go into our fancy buildings, go into our fancy cars, go to our fancy homes, right? It's just about saying, hey, welcome. Come sit with us, right? Come be a part of my table, my meal. Uh, Come be in my home. And it's a really powerful message. Because it's easy to go to a soup kitchen and smile for a day and put on the hairnet and the apron and put food on someone's plate, not really have an interaction and walk away feeling really good. There's nothing wrong, but something in the system that needs to happen. We need volunteers for these things to keep going. But it's, an, it's a situation in which 
the person who's serving walks away feeling like they did something really great that day. Whereas the person coming in, that's just where they're getting their meal. Yeah. And I always would, I, I would much rather be in the situation of sitting down and having a meal with someone. When I volunteered at, you know, soup kitchens, shelters, I actually felt bad leaving those situations because I felt you did feel like you're serving the person. It just, there, there was a hierarchy there that wasn't, didn't feel good. I didn't like it. And people don't want to make eye contact. And I think just that whole opportunity to just sit and just hang out. No one feels uncomfortable. Everyone's just talking as people, I think is huge. Yeah. Well, it sounds like we have to have you at our next meet your neighbor. Oh my gosh. I would love to. I'll, I'll come to town for it. I'll do uh, anything. I would do it in a second. I would love it. I'm excited. I'll tell you in a little bit about our pivots and what we've done since the pandemic. Um, But the second uh, really impactful moment that happened was there was someone who came over to me at the end of a meet your neighbor dinner and he had tears in his eyes, older man. And he said, Adina, I've spent over 10 years in prison. I've lived my entire life in Brooklyn and I never thought my Brooklyn would look like this black people and white people sitting together at a table. He said, this was my first time sitting and having a meal and a conversation with a white person who wasn't my lawyer. Wow. And to me, while we don't talk openly about race at our meet your neighbor events, you walk into a room, 50% of them are black and 50% of them are white. Maybe not that exact line. And it's actually fascinating when you have like one or two employees at one of these big corporate companies who are black and you have, you know, one or two of these people who are in a shelter who are white and sometimes seeing that interaction of, cause not everyone in the office always knows each other and people trying to figure out like, are you living in a shelter? Are you living in a, like, it's fascinating to watch. It's like one of my, like it, those are the times that I want to be a fly on the wall and yeah. by watching those social interactions. It's amazing. So let's talk a little bit. You said you're kind of pivoting pandemic, post-pandemic. I was going to pitch you this idea of, in a glance, give us your pants. But what do you have that you're actually doing? And that's a freebie. That's just take that, go with God. That's our gift to you. Um, but what are you doing that might might be better than that? Might yeah. not, but it might be. I love that. It's great. Yeah. Keep that one in the pocket. Yeah, um, definitely. Keep it we- close. So as I mentioned, during the pandemic, we were, before the pandemic, we did sock distributions, meet your neighbor events, and our holiday carnival. Once the pandemic hit, no companies were doing sock drives. We didn't have people that we could hire living in shelters to help us distribute those socks. We didn't have any meet your neighbor lunches or dinners. And of course, our holiday carnival had to get postponed. So right away, for a good six months, I cried a lot. Um, and then eventually, slowly things started coming. We, we started pivoting to virtual meet your neighbor panels, where we have three or four people on a panel who share their journeys and stories around homelessness. So that was like the first pivot. Um, then I decided to write a set of children's books on homelessness, um, which I'll get to in a minute. I'll tell you a little bit more about that. Uh, and then in the last few months, basically since February, I kind of got to this point where 
companies are not in their offices yet. So we can't really do meet your neighbor dinners. And if they are, they're like super strict, super hybrid, really difficult to work with. But people are going to concerts, people are going on airplanes, people are going to restaurants, like everything else is back up and running that I was at a point where we can't not do our programming because companies aren't hosting them. So basically every month since February, we've been hosting a meet your neighbor event with a different theme and we opened up to the general public to buy tickets. So each event is around 50 people. We invite 25 people who are living in shelters and 25 people from the general public to purchase a ticket. And each event has a different theme. So February was Black History Month. So we spoke about Black History Month at it. March, we did one for Women's History Month. That was women's only. April, uh, we're doing one on April 26th in honor of Earth Day. So we'll have some climate change speakers there. Uh, May, we're doing one for Mother's Day, which will be mothers only and children. Uh, other people are invited, but dads and anyone who's not a mom and over the age. Get out. No. Well, oh, actually, sorry. No. Okay. Okay. Then, sorry. <laughs> you're a volunteer and taking care of all those kids so that the moms can have a nice oh, intimate brunch. <laughs> very nice. And then, uh, and then June, we're doing one in pride and then in honor of pride. And then afterwards, you know, we're, we're kind of, we came up with like six and we're like, okay, we'll come up with the, the rest later. Um, so, so we are back to doing in-person meet your neighbor events. We're doing a lot of them at like churches or synagogues or, you know, places that are donating space to us, which has been really great. Uh, so it's different than doing it in corporate offices. And it's different when I'm like texting anyone I know who's ever been involved in knock, knock, give a sock being like, Hey, do you want to come to this event? Cause I'm used to kind of going, bringing all of our neighbors from shelters and the companies bring the other half. So there's definitely a lot of pivots here. Um, but it just means basically going through my old wedding invitation list and texting every person I know. <laughs> <laughs> that's perfect. Um, but yeah, so that's how, how we've pivoted. So we're, we're back to in-person events. I had to let go of two of my employees during the pandemic. I was able to rehire them in November, our holiday carnival, which was canceled in 2020. We're able to redo in 2021. So we've been really lucky and definitely back on track. So for people who are listening to this, who maybe are not based in New York, um, hopefully Antarctica, because we're trying to really get our listenership up there. So far, it's it's zero. But if folks want to help out, what can they do? Can they help arrange a dinner like this in their community? Do they give money? Do they donate socks? What can they do to get involved? So there are four different ways to get involved. One, um, you can get your school company, community involved in collecting socks in your neighborhood, right? So that's one thing you can do. You can go on our website and you can sign up your school to, and we'll send you our logo and how to run a sock drive and put you in contact with your local shelter. Two, money is always nice to be donated. It helps us hire our people, distribute our socks, warehouse our socks, all that fun stuff. Uh, three, uh, if you are interested in doing a meet your neighbor dinner, uh, Individually, if you want to sign up, you can come to one in New York City. Uh, follow us on Instagram. Uh, find us there. Uh, also, check out our website, but the dinners are actually posted on our Instagram. Uh, but if you want to engage your community or company in a Meet Your Neighbor dinner, uh, shoot us an email also through our website, kkgs.org, and we'll help you organize one. And then the last one, uh, which I think is basically, I think, the easiest way to start, especially for anyone who has any kids. Uh, during the pandemic, I mentioned we couldn't do any meet your neighbor events and we need to figure out a way to humanize homelessness. Uh, so that's when we wrote a, a pair of books. 
play on pair of socks. So two uh, books. Oh. Perfect. We call it the pair of books project. The first book is called Knock Knock Give a Sock. And it's about a little girl who starts collecting socks for her neighbors on the street. Is that and little girl supposed to look like anyone in particular? <laughs> like a little bit of me. A little bit? Okay. A little Just bit a of me. A little <laughs> well, bit. She's there. adorable. Thank you. Thank you. It's like me as a five-year-old, but like also daughter of a of a, a interracial couple. So uh, she is Dee Dee. And so different backgrounds a little bit, but essentially me as a five-year-old. <laughs> in, Love it. Perfect. In most ways. And she ends up giving socks out to her neighbors on the street. Don't spoil uh, the ending, but <laughs> what? <laughs> don't don't give it away. Just yeah. Some suspense. <laughs> And then this is uh, Crystal. Crystal uh, is in a book called Knock Knock, Where's My Sock? It's the companion book. And it's about a little girl whose family moves into a shelter. But during the move, she loses the matching pair to her lucky sock. And she thinks, what could I do if I just have one sock? So first she tries it on as a bracelet. It's too big. She tries it on. She tries to use it as a bag for her toys, but it's too small. Then she realizes she can put it over her eyes like a superhero mask. And she ends up starting a superhero club where they do random acts of kindness throughout the city. And she engages all the other kids in the shelter as well um, and starts the superhero club. And the idea is you have two girls in two different housing situations who both make an impact in their neighborhood, regardless of their housing status. So this was the big COVID pivot, uh, which took up most of my year last year. That's wonderful. So for folks who want to do any of this stuff. I'm assuming that the books are available on the website. Yep. yep. On the top, it says socks. If you want to get involved with socks, donate. If you want to donate money, um, contact us if you're interested in meet your neighbor dinner. And there's also a tab at the top for books, which will take the link uh, to our Shopify account to get the books. So as we wrap up, you've been doing this for a few years now. Are you more optimistic about sort of the state of the world and the humanity uh, of people around you that you've interacted through this project? Are you more positive about everything than you were or less? Um, I think it's a mix, uh, if I'm being completely honest. I think the problems around homelessness are getting bigger and bigger, especially Uh, Mm post-pandemic. I think homelessness is very much on the rise uh, for many different reasons. Uh, so there's that, right? So in that sense, I'm not optimistic. On the other hand, I do believe that we're a missing puzzle piece. There are lots of people who are ending homelessness, who are working on creating housing, creating job programs, creating solutions. Uh, but the problem is you can have housing in every big city across America. But if community boards and town halls and communities are fearful of their neighbors moving into their area, which is a big problem, right? It's There's lack of affordable housing. It's not that there necessarily isn't housing, but there's a lot of zoning laws and there's a lot of stigma and fear and property values, right? That people are concerned about, which bars our neighbors from getting housing. But for all those people who fear that, if they had come to one of our dinners and sat down next to their neighbors who are living in shelters, I believe that fear would dissipate. And I believe that a lot more housing opportunities become available. So I think we just, for us, we're still small and growing, but I think we just need to keep having these dinners all over um, and have them pop up everywhere 
and I think that will move the needle because homelessness needs to be personal, right? Social change needs to become personal. And if those with power and resources don't know the people who are affected by it, then how can we ever expect to see change? show is produced by myself and Heidi Hegquist. Our reluctant producers are John Sobey and Sandy Stone. Our willing producers are Rachel Allen and Randy Jeanette. Our intern is Zach Jackson. This is for Philippe. Thanks for joining us. Flash, we're coming home. Nigel, is that you? Are you here, Nigel?